The French had collapsed. The Dutch had been overwhelmed. The Belgians had surrendered. The British army, trapped, fought free and fell back toward the Channel ports, converging on a fishing town whose name was then spelled Dunkirk. William Manchester sets the stage for the story of how the British army was rescued at the seaport of Dunkirk. He continues to write, Now the 220,000 Tommies at Dunkirk, Britain's only hope, seemed doomed. On the Flanders beaches, they stood around in angular, existential attitudes like dim purgatorial souls awaiting disposition. There appeared to be no way to bring more than a handful of them home. The Royal Navy's vessels were inadequate. King George VI has been told they would be lucky to save 17,000. The House of Commons was warned to prepare for, quote, hard and heavy tidings. Then, from the streams and estuaries of Kent and Dover, a strange fleet appeared. Trawlers and tugs, scows and fishing sloops, lifeboats and pleasure craft, smacks and coasters. The island ferry Gracie Fields, Tom Sopwith's America's Cup Challenger Endeavor. Even the London Fire Brigade's fire float, Macy Shaw. All of them manned by civilian volunteers. English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted, bleeding sons. Manchester, in his novel, The Last Lion, wonderfully recounts the miraculous rescue of the British Army at Dunkirk. All of us prior to conversion were much like the British Army on the beaches of Dunkirk, in desperate need of a miracle. All attempts at self-deliverance for them, for the British Army, and likewise for us, were inadequate. Today, Psalm 107 gives us the account of the divine rescue experienced by the Israelites while they were in exile, and as they recall their divine rescue, it leads them toward thanksgiving and praise. This psalm for us should help to recall our own deliverance story, and like the Israelites, should lead the Christian to conclude that God has done a wonderful work for us in Christ. Now, if you have your Bible, and it's open to Psalm 107, we will, we'll begin at verse 1, and I will read the entirety of this psalm. And after I'm done reading, please keep it open, because my exposition will have four parts and will remain in this psalm for some time. The Word of God reads, beginning at verse 1. O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. 
For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields, plant vineyards, and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low, through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I am aware of my dependence on you. 
more so now than ever before. My words are subservient to your word. I pray that would be clear this morning. I pray that your word would be what changes us. I pray that your word would be what challenges us. And I pray that your word would be what we celebrate and sing about. So now I ask that you just use this time to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Four points to consider from this psalm. First point, the redeemed and the gathered. The first three verses of our psalm give us some context on who these redeemed are and who the gathered in are. They are those who've been redeemed from trouble and those who've been gathered in from the lands. When we think of the word redeemed in our modern vernacular, most of us consider uh, redeeming credit card points or redeeming a coupon at the store. When the psalmist writes of the redeemed of the Lord, what he's referring to is the practice of the kinsman redeemer as it's outlined in Leviticus 25. In this passage, in Leviticus 25, the Lord provides specific instructions for those who found themselves enslaved or in debt. A brother, uncle, cousin, or any other family member could buy their kinsmen out of slavery and purchase their debt, thus the term kinsman-redeemer. The kinsman would pay the price incurred by their enslaved family member. Through the psalmist's pen, the Lord is showing us that these redeemed are those who've been delivered out of their slavery. They've also had a spiritual debt paid for. Another theme that would be easy to overlook as we read this psalm, but that is worth noting, is that these redeemed by the Lord are those who've been gathered in from the lands. We're given some details, as the psalmist indicates, the redeemed are those gathered in from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. We all know that if you're in one spot, I could be looking to my east, west, north, or south. I don't know if those are the actual directions. I am a little directionally challenged. But if you're looking in any of those directions, you could be looking anywhere. Herein lies one interpretive challenge for our text. We don't know specifically where these redeemed are being gathered in from. We don't know. Some biblical scholars believe that this passage is referencing those who've been brought back to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. While we might not know the geographic specifics of where the redeemed are being gathered in from, what really matters when we read this text is where they're being brought back to. The promised land. Being brought back to the promised land. The biblical evidence supports that this group of redeemed people being gathered in were previously in exile. Now, to better understand how they became exiled, we'll have to take a walk down Bible memory lane. From the beginning of creation, it was God's intention to dwell with man in the garden. 
And as man extended this garden throughout the earth, God would continue to dwell closely and commune with Adam and Eve and their offspring in this newly expanded garden that, would, uh, that was intended to cover the entire earth. However, what we read about in Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden and we no longer read of the same kind of communion existing between God and man until later developments. For the time being, God would reside in the heavens and would occasionally visit particular people in the Bible, patriarchs such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, something interesting occurs in the book of Exodus. The Lord, Yahweh, visits with Moses at Mount Sinai. And what he does there is he provides instructions on how these Israelites are to construct a tabernacle. This would be God's new dwelling place with man, where he would meet regularly with man. What God also does is he makes a promise with his people that he would give the Israelites a promised land that is flowing with milk and honey. The Israelites would carry this newly constructed tabernacle around with them until they reached this promised land. Through the military campaigns led by Joshua, the Israelites would eventually advance into the promised land. They end up inhabiting Jerusalem. Then, under the kingship of David, this people of God who previously sojourned as twelve separate tribes are now united under one kingdom. And they can now gather as one people to worship God in the central geographic location of Jerusalem. I'm getting somewhere with this. It wasn't until the the reign of David's son Solomon that we read about the Israelites building a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. This temple would be Yahweh's new chosen dwelling place among His people. Then what happens? A failure in national leadership, apostasy committed by Israel's prophets and the people, then a splitting of the kingdom, then widespread, rampant apostasy in the nation. The prophets of Israel, one with whom we are familiar, Hosea, pronounce judgments of exile that would come upon Israel if she does not repent of her sins. We all know the story. Israel doesn't repent. And she continues along her path of apostasy and is consequently exiled from the promised land. Now this theme of exile is significant in redemptive history. It's one that we must be aware of when reading the Old Testament, when reading the prophets, when reading even the Psalms. Significant because of the land promise and how God had marked this land intended for the Israelites to worship God in. He marked it to be the place where He would dwell with His people. As the people are exiled from this promised land, we read in the Scriptures of the heartache that existed within this exiled people. They were heartbroken that they were gone from the place where they were called to worship their Lord. You can read about this in Lamentations 
The word reads, How lonely sits the city, the city being Jerusalem, that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She, was, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. You can see with those metaphors the depth of Jeremiah's heartache that these people were now exiled from their city. Now, I intentionally skipped verse 1, but what we read of in verse 1 is an exhortation, one that recurs throughout the Psalter. And this exhortation reads, to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The last time I stood behind this pulpit and preached, I mentioned how the phrase steadfast love is translated from the Hebrew word hesed. This word means covenant, faithfulness, and loyal love. These exiled Israelites suffered the consequence of Israel's previous sin. But notice the turnaround. What we read about in this psalm, Psalm 107, is that their deliverance from exile is yet another reminder that God is steadfast in His love. And that His covenant faithfulness does endure forever. Imagine with me, the Israelites must not have been thinking that while they were in exile. Who would have thought that this covenant-keeping God would stay true to the promise to bring them back to their promised land. But here, in Psalm 107, what we see is that God is faithful to deliver His people when they cry out to Him. They were back home where God's presence resided, and then they could now sing with gusto that God is good. Believers, under the new covenant, we no longer look to a specific geographic location to worship God in. Because the Lord has chosen a new tabernacle in which to dwell with man. He dwells in us, His people. You can read that in Ephesians 2, verse 22. What verses 4 through 32 tell of are these Israelites, the Israelites' experiences while they were in exile and how God is faithful to deliver His covenant people when they call upon Him. That leads to point number two. Wanderers, prisoners, fools, and the distressed. What the psalmist does is he breaks up these 28 verses into four groupings, telling of the experiences of the Israelites while they were in exile. There's a reason that these stories were included for the original audience. What the psalmist wanted to do is remind God's people after their exile that they were a people who were in exile. It's easy. It's, it's very, very easy to forget the work that God has done in our lives. It's easy after some months, years, decades to forget the body of death that we once lived in prior to meeting with Jesus. These verses, what they do, is they help us to recall our own deliverance stories. 
Let's look at the first grouping in verses 4 through 9. The psalmist mentions those who wandered through desert wastes without a city to call home. These wanderers were also hungry and thirsty and needed to be fed. I'm thirsty right now. Prior to conversion, how many here searched for your identity and nourishment in all the wrong things? Only to be left spiritually starving. I know I can't be the only one. Perhaps your wandering wasn't marked by hunger and thirst, but by having plenty. What I mean by this is it could be that the Lord had to show you how meaningless life can be while you searched for meaning and the accumulation of material wealth. Or maybe you searched for meaning in relationships. These wanderers, we're told, had souls that fainted within them. Regardless of whether your wandering was filled with hunger and thirst, with little or plenty, all of us, each one of us, experienced a fainted, tired soul before Jesus saved us. We each needed to find rest. This reminds me of Augustine's famous line from his Confessions when he writes, You, which is God, have made us and drawn us to Yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. What Augustine understood was that the human condition prior to Christ is one of restlessness. Each of us were made in the image of God, and every man, woman, and child is created for communion with their Creator. If it were not not for Jesus saving us, each of us would be on a dead-end search looking for meaning in everything that is meaningless. The hungry and the thirsty wanderer in our text, what they can do is cry out to the Lord of covenant faithfulness and loyal love and be delivered. The second experience we read of in our text is of the prisoner. Verses 10-16. through 16. These prisoners endured affliction and were in irons because they had rebelled against the words of God. What this experience depicts how those who hear God's Word and fail to obey it are then punished and suffer harm. But even the prisoner is not without hope. What we read of in Psalm 107 is that the prisoner too can call upon the Lord of covenant faithfulness and be rescued from their captivity caused by their sin. That is good news. Again, certain there are some here, some of us here, who can identify with this passage. I'm certain there are some here who can see their own story of redemption here in this passage. We were each imprisoned at one time by the passions of our flesh and our sinful desires, And if it were not for the tender mercy of our God, we would have remained imprisoned in those sins. Praise God. Verse 16 tells us that God shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. This demonstrates as only God could release those in shackles, 
Only God can open the prison doors. The next grouping, verses 17 through 22, is like that of the prisoner. Because the psalmist tells us these Israelites were fools through their sinful ways. Like the prisoner, the fool is held captive by their sin and suffers harm because of their sins. An appropriate understanding of sin is that its, wage, its wages always lead to death. You can read Romans 6.23 for more information on that. But if we continue in Romans 6.23, what we read is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The prisoner and the fool, the insolent and the captive, each one can call upon the Lord and be rescued. Finally, the last grouping of those who called upon the Lord and were delivered are the distressed. Verses 23-32 through tell us of the merchant who's at sea and how these merchants were caught in stormy waters. They then cry out to the Lord for their deliverance and were saved. The psalmist doesn't tell us here that this was a result of their sin. He doesn't say that. What we find here in this last group are those who are confronted with their mere humanity. In the face of the violence of nature, all of us are confronted with just how small and truly powerless we are. Just this last Thursday, I was preparing for this sermon at my kitchen table, and there was a thunderstorm in North Mesa, where I live, and there was a lightning bolt that was right outside in front of my house that shook the walls of my house. And it shook so hard that my dogs got angry and started barking at it. I don't know what they thought they could do, but they got a little angry at the lightning bolt. And this just demonstrates how little control I had over that circumstance. I couldn't control the thunderstorm. Or maybe you've been in a plane that was being rocked by winds, and you experienced extreme turbulence due to those winds. Doesn't it show in those moments just how little control we have? The sailors here in these verses recognized they had no control. They had no control over the waves of the sea. Only the Lord did. And they cried out to the Lord for deliverance and were saved. Four different circumstances. Four unique experiences that all end with the same result. Deliverance. Deliverance. Notice how each circumstance or grouping ends with a similar call to respond. You can see this in verses 8, 15, 21, and 31. Here the psalmist writes, Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. Each deliverance story carries with it a call to respond to the Lord in thanksgiving. To thank Him for His steadfast love. We too, Christians, in the 21st century can read this psalm, recall our own circumstance that led to our deliverance, and sing out in thanksgiving for all that God has done for us in Christ. 
Our God, who is steadfast in love, is also sovereign in His care for us. This leads to the next point, the sovereign care of God. The same God who provides deliverance to His covenant people is the same God who controls everything. Verses 33-42 through 42 show this very clearly. They demonstrate His absolute sovereignty over the created order. Notice how in verses 33-35, through 35, the psalmist tells of the Lord's sovereign control over water in dry places. Think for a moment of the massive implications of this verse, of these verses. Consider how dependent the Israelites would be on water. I think this story might be familiar to us who've lived in the valley for any length of time. We live, and just like the Israelites lived, in a very arid region in the Middle East. We know, just like the Israelites knew, that having access to water was essential to satisfy their thirst, to raise livestock, to grow crops, and thus be fruitful and multiply. Verse 38 provides us with the result of God's sovereign care. Blessing and abundance for His people. God's desire for His covenant people is that they would prosper. The psalmist recognizes this, and we must also. The Lord doesn't leave His people lacking what they need. Are you someone in need this morning? You can ask of the Lord and He will provide. Now, as a disclaimer, we're not proponents of the health and wealth gospel here at Center Church. The idea that God will shower material riches to every believer. That's, that's not what we believe. But the testimony of Scripture is that God's people are provided for. God provides for His people both in what they need to survive physically and in what we need to thrive spiritually. Our God is a God of provision. The psalmist, he reiterates this for us in verse 41 when he writes that the needy would be raised up out of affliction and that God would make their families like flocks. What this simile conveys is that God's desire for His people is to be fruitful and multiply. What this should show us is that our God is not just a sovereign God who does whatever He pleases. He's not just a God that resides in the heavens controlling everything, though He is. But it shows us that He cares for us. Christian, let this portion of Psalm 107 remind you that the same God who provided for the Israelites is the same God who provides for us. He doesn't spare any good thing from His children. This leads to our fourth and final point this morning. In verse 43, we read, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. 
Up until this point, we've considered who the redeemed of the Lord are. They are God's covenant people bought out of slavery and redeemed from their spiritual debt. We've also considered where they've been gathered to, the promised land. We've also considered the circumstances regarding their redemption. In the last line of our psalm, what the psalmist does is he appeals to God's people to be wise. What does that mean? Here, wisdom for the psalmist equates to considering the steadfast love of the Lord. This call to to consideration for the Israelite, it requires them to remember how God has shown Himself faithful in the past. These redeemed Israelites had the privilege of being able to experience firsthand the covenant faithfulness and sovereign care of the Lord through their deliverance from these various circumstances we read of in Psalm 107. What we should consider is that the experience of these four groupings of Israelites who were delivered parallels the experience of another Israelite. The first group's experience we discussed, the wanderer, parallels the experience of Jesus as he was led into the wilderness to wander for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. This group in Psalm 107, we're told, were hungry and thirsty. Imagine Jesus' deep hunger and thirst being in a desert for 40 days and 40 nights. This group in Psalm 107, the second and third group, the prisoner and fool, received their prison sentence and affliction because of their sin. These prisoners suffered affliction and were at the brink of death through their own doing. Jesus was also imprisoned before His crucifixion. Although He never sinned, and He suffered undue affliction at the cross for the sins of others. The final group, the distressed, they were tossed around like a rag doll at sea. They cried out to the Lord for deliverance and were saved from the crashing waters. We find in the Gospels an account of the disciples being at sea with Jesus and how they suffered under a mighty tempest that threatened to wreck their boat, that threatened to wreck their boat while Jesus was asleep at the bottom of the boat. But where these four experiences share some similarities, there are some major differences for us to consider. Only Jesus could feed the hungry and quench the thirst of the thirsty. He did this by turning a few loaves of bread and fishes into enough food for thousands. And he tells us, and he tells the Samaritan woman at the well that he himself is living water. Only Jesus could heal the afflicted, raise the dead, and cast out demons from the possessed, thus setting spiritual captives free. And, in the face of tempestuous waters, only Jesus could calm the raging seas. 
What should we do with this? The Christian can consider the same covenant faithfulness of the Lord as the Israelites did because Jesus is the expressed embodiment of the covenant faithfulness of our God. Jesus represents the power of God in every miracle He ever performed. Jesus fed the hungry, healed the sick, casted out demons, and stilled the seas. Only Jesus can rescue the wandering. Only Jesus can free the imprisoned. And only Jesus can save the distressed. To close, if you're here and you're a Christian, what this psalm teaches us is that we can have a deep, abiding attitude of thanksgiving because Jesus has done the same miraculous work for us. Each one of us were at one time wanderers. Each one of us were imprisoned. Each one of us were foolish. And we've all been distressed at some point. But at just the right time, Christ rescued us. Every believer, every Christian, has a rescue story. Each of us were bought out of slavery to sin, and our spiritual debt was settled by the blood of Jesus. What we can't do is forget what He's bought us from. And likewise, we cannot forget the blood that was shed to purchase our debt. The beginning of Psalm 107 tells of those that are gathered in from the lands. Church, God is still gathering a people in from the lands. We know this because the Bible says in Colossians 1.6 that the Gospel is indeed in the whole world. It's increasing and it's bearing fruit. God will use the story of the redeemed to continue bringing newly redeemed people into His family. Of course, it's only the Gospel that saves. But the Lord can use our testimonies of grace to draw people in to hear the Gospel. Were you a wanderer? Remember your wandering and how Christ satisfied the deep hunger and thirst you experienced. Tell others of your testimony. Tell others of how God has done a work in your life and see what He does. Maybe you were a prisoner and a fool like I was. Remember that day that Christ saved you from your sin and transformed your callous heart. Tell others of how Jesus rescued you from your sin and delivered you and see how God brings Himself glory through it. Or maybe the Lord calmed the stormy waters of a recent trial in your life. Maybe you're in a trial right now. And you've been praying, Lord, deliver me from this trial. Wait on the Lord. See how He will rescue you then testify to His grace 
in rescuing you. Tell others of his sovereign power and care. Church, this psalm is a reminder that our God is still in the business of joyfully delivering the wanderer. That he's still in the business of joyfully saving sinners. That our God is still in the business of joyfully rescuing the distressed. So let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is everything to us. It's everything. It's what we put our hope in. It's what we look to for instruction and guidance on how to live a Christ-centered life. And I pray that, that my words only, uh, were only subservient to Your Word this morning. I pray that Your Spirit would be active in applying this text to the hearts of Your people. Lord, I pray that You would remind us of our wandering prior to being changed by the Gospel. Pray that You would remind us how we were once imprisoned by our sin. But since You've set us free. Father, I pray that You'd remind us of the many trials You have delivered us from. Lord, use this psalm to Your glory in Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.